Amen. Amen. So thank you for helping out with that, guys. I had no idea Jay and Michelle were doing so bad. There are times people are in the hospital and you're just like, you know, stay away. And it's like, okay. You you don't want to bug them. That's terrible. All right, if you have your Bibles, we're still in Luke 1. I'll be in Luke 1 this week and next week, right before Christmas. And we're dealing with uh, Mary's visit to Elizabeth. And the reaction of John as a baby inside of Elizabeth when Mary comes to visit. And this is one of my favorite stories around the time of Jesus' birth. Because in my own life, babies reacting to special people when they're in the womb is nothing new. This to me has always been like, oh, well, yeah, duh, the baby's going to do something. Uh, because when I was about seven or eight, my mom told us about uh, my older sister, Stephanie. Uh, she was... My mom was pregnant with my sister, and she was, my mom was visiting my dad at work. My dad works in a print shop. My dad was uh, working, talking with my mom while he was working. And they were just, it's loud in a print shop. They have presses running and all that stuff. But somebody was carrying a large metal pole. And they were carrying it around, walking with it, and they lost their grip on this metal pole and dropped it on the ground. It was pretty big. And my mom said it made this huge, loud, clanging noise. And when it hit the ground, it made that loud clang my sister jumped. She's shocked. And that story stuck with me. And every time I'd read this story in the Bible, I would think of my sister jumping inside my mom. It just was like, okay, well, of course. And rewind with that, we're going to rewind to last year, about January. Danny's going to laugh at this story because you were there. But Sarah was pregnant with Ben. That was just last year. That's crazy to me that Sarah was pregnant with Ben last January. It seems like forever ago. But she was pregnant about, with Ben, and she was about seven months along. And we were at my brother Andy's house, and we were playing a board game. And we had all my siblings there. We had, I remember it was, I was at the head of the table, and then there was Sarah, and there was Joey, and there was Danny, and there was Andy. There was my sister-in-law, Kirsty, my sister, Christy, and my brother, Kenny. So there are a bunch of us around this table playing a game. Um, I won't say what game, but you can probably imagine which game it was, if you know my family. And I was standing up, and I was sort of directing what everybody was doing. I was like, okay, you need to do this, you need to do this. And I was talking, because that's what I do. I was giving directions, because that's also what I do, bossing all my siblings around. And Sarah was sitting there next to me, and she had her hands on, my, on her belly, just like this. And it wasn't unusual to me. She usually had her hands on her belly. She did that with all of her pregnancies. She just had her hands on her stomach. And after I stopped talking, Sarah kind of gave me this look. And so I'm like, what are you, what, what are you making that face for? And she said, Ben, because we knew it was a boy. We already picked his name out. She said, Ben was going nuts the whole time you were talking. She says, as I was up there talking and telling everybody, giving the directions, okay, pull out a D4, pull out a D8, we're doing here, roll for initiative. She said, everybody, as I was giving everyone directions, she said, Ben was just going nuts inside of her. And that really touched my heart. That was special to me because it meant Ben knew my voice and that he was excited about hearing my voice. And in reality, that's all of me he knew. He, before he saw me, before, he, before I ever held him, he knew my voice. And it amazes me that he could have that kind of reaction, that kind of excitement, 
based on just hearing my voice. Because babies in the womb are so cool. I mean, they're alive and they're experiencing the world, but their information is so limited. I mean, it's the first information they get, but it's crucial to their development as a human. Because human development, social, intellectual, emotional, doesn't start when we're born. We don't just come out with no information. We actually start developing inside of our mothers. And any person paying attention says, well, yeah, obviously. They, they react to music. They can react to voices, loud noises. They can react to light. If you get a really bright light and shine it across the mom's belly, uh, don't do it when the mom's asleep because then she's mad at you. But Ben recognized my voice when he was in the womb. And when he was born, he used that information to identify me and bond with me. And he says, oh, the guy, that guy who I heard talking all the time when I was inside mom, that's that guy who's holding me now. Is that me out in the foyer hearing myself talk, or is that a, the uh, Cowboys game? Okay. Thank you. Turn me down. <laughs> I like talking, but I don't like hearing myself when it's a recording. Especially an echo. A little bit of a delayed echo. Not a huge fan. Sarah's out there listening with Ben. And Ben's probably like, Dad. Okay, that's me. It makes me so mad and so frustrated that my one-year-old son has a lower voice than I do. We'll, we'll be playing and he'll come to me and be like, ball, ball, catch. And I'm like, Thanks, Ben. Anyway, but uh, this passage here in Luke 1 gives us some insight into babies before birth and about how they interact with their environment, which, you know, isn't special. We already know, babies interact with their environment and even inside the womb. Uh, What I find really fascinating in this passage is the fact that God works in babies even before they're born. And this passage does actually shed some light on that. And that is fascinating to me. Because it seems so rare to us that a person could have a spiritual experience before they were born. And to me that seems like a foreign concept. uh, Because we tend to view our faith intellectually or emotionally. Or obviously, or maybe some kind of both. Both intellectual, we process what we know about God, and we sort of experience God. Sometimes I want to cry when I'm singing a song. That's the emotional component. But how does God work in someone's life before they can talk? Or before they even think using words? Can God do that? Reeling you in, Ray. You're spoiling it for everybody. But yeah, If you read the Bible, yes, you can see that he does. You're fine, Ray. I'm just teasing you. Would God work in the life of a baby or a toddler or a child? And this passage in Luke said, shed some light on it. It's not a lot of light, but it actually is important. And we'll make sure that we talk about that this morning. We focus on the work that God does in children. Because we have some teachers and some kids from Kids Kingdom here, which is not a coincidence. I invited them here. I lined up the passage. I was like, we're going to talk about kids because it's important. And kids are important. We run a preschool out of this building during the week, five days out of the week for 12, 14 hours a day, however long they're they're open for. We have kids that we talk to about Jesus. We pray for them. We bless them. We try to guide them in the faith. But how receptive are the kids? How meaningful is our work? Are we doing anything or are we just having a nice time? And the story we are in today starts in verses 39 and 40. Mary Mary goes down to visit Elizabeth. 
In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now, if you'll notice, it just says a town in Judah. We don't really know. But where does Mary live? Do you remember? Mary lives in a little city called Nazareth. But in those days, which means right after Gabriel visited Mary, so it's within a couple days, she went with haste to visit Elizabeth because she heard about Elizabeth being pregnant. So she probably went to her parents and said, hey, mom, hey, dad, going to go down and visit Elizabeth, our relative. And they, God gave her favor. Probably was, their parents were like, yeah, sure, go ahead. Now, she was in Galilee, up in the north. And Elizabeth was in Judah, which is in the south. I wanted somebody to say west and be like, no. <laughs> there is a, there's a sea there. But if you know the geography of Israel, that's actually a fair trip. Going from Mary's house in Nazareth to Judah. Now, I did this. Uh, Google is far too helpful of a sermon writing device. Because this is just a map of Israel, present-day Israel with Nazareth in the north and Hebron, just a, pity, a city in Judah in the south. Hebron, sort of a centralized city in Judah, one of the major cities too. And this is a map, if you were to walk from Nazareth to Hebron, it would take you 39 hours. Just walking. I've never walked 39 hours at once. I can imagine it would take a while, probably about 39 hours. But Google says it's about a 40-hour walk. That's with roads. Okay, the roads we have. That's walking on a concrete sidewalk the whole way with comfortable shoes on, with lighting for the roads, with modern amenities, you know, bathrooms where you can go conveniently, food you can just order. You know, you could probably take a couple hundred dollars in your wallet and walk that and, you know, be fine. Stop at a hotel halfway through, you know, no problem. So in ancient times, this is not like a, oh, we're just going to go. This is a get your, you know, pack up your animal, pack up your backpack, take all your stuff. This is going to take a while. This is probably a three or four day walk because I don't think Mary ran cross country in high school. And if she did, she's probably not going to want to run when she's pregnant. So Mary is just pregnant here at this point. She's just in the first couple weeks pregnant with Jesus and arriving at Elizabeth's house. I'll go forward one verse. Verse 41. And when Mary visits Elizabeth, the baby leaps in her womb. John jumps for joy inside of Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is actually filled with the Holy Spirit at the time. And I don't think Mary yelled. I don't think Mary came into her house and was like, Hey Liz, great to see you. You know, been a while, last family reunion, right? I don't think she yelled. I just think she came in and was just like, oh, Hi, long time. How are you? John, in response, jumps for joy. And Elizabeth, John's mom, could tell this wasn't a normal movement of a baby. Moms can kind of tell what babies normally do. Never had a baby, never been pregnant, don't plan on it. But from what I hear, moms can tell normal baby movements. So John wasn't rolling over to just get comfortable or practicing kicking. She could tell this was a special response to a special situation. And along with that, she notices the baby jumps for joy. And when John jumps for joy, she is filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, there are two things going on in this verse. This verse is the central part of the passage. And there are two questions I want to ask. I want to ask two why questions. Why did John jump? 
What made John the Baptist jump? Second, why did the Holy Spirit fill Elizabeth? These are the two central elements of the story. They, ex- they are the hinge that everything moves on. So I'm going to address them actually in reverse. We're going to ask why the Holy Spirit filled Elizabeth first and then deal with why John jumped second. And the first thing I want to look at is this. Why did the Holy Spirit fill Elizabeth? Now, when the Bible says the Holy Spirit fills someone, what does that mean? Uh, The filling of the Holy Spirit is actually a common occurrence in the New Testament. We see in the early church people filled with the Holy Spirit many times. I've got two Bible verses here in one slide. Acts 2.4 and Acts 4.31. This is the same group of people that in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, they're all in one accord, they're praying, and the Holy Spirit comes in like a rushing wind, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They spoke in tongues, and then Peter gives his long sermon. We're really impressed the church starts. But just two chapters later, when Peter and John are dealing with the Sanhedrin, they come back to the group of believers and say, hey guys, we've got to pray about this. This is, we're under spiritual attack. We've got to be praying. We've got to be seeing what, what's on God's heart. And they prayed, and the place in which they gathered were shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. This same group of people, many people overlapping from both groups, experienced the filling of the Holy Spirit at one point, and then probably not but a couple days, maybe months later, they experienced the filling of the Holy Spirit again. And in fact, Paul even commands us to be filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 5, or Acts, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So obviously this sounds like it's a big deal if it's in the Bible so much. This is pretty important. But it's really a sermon on its own. The filling of the Holy Spirit is a separate subject that requires a whole lot of explanation, but I do want to talk about it briefly. In a nutshell, the filling of the Holy Spirit is a distinct, repeatable event in the life of the Christian. It is an event, it is an occurrence brought on by the Holy Spirit, and I've got a long list here, where he touches your heart, your spirit, your mind, in order to create love for God, worship of God, uh, spiritual growth, sanctification, awareness of God, as well as power for ministry, love for people. You could keep writing the list on. If you have, in the course of your Christian life, experienced something like this, the filling of the Holy Spirit, where you have a moment where you sense the reality of God working on your life, and it makes you just want to sing praise songs all the time, where it makes you more effective in the ministry that you're working in, where it makes you love people, and all of a sudden you have more patience and more kindness for people. You have experienced the filling of the Holy Spirit. And God wants us to have that experience many times in our Christian life. He wants us to surrender to the Holy Spirit and have the Holy Spirit filling us over and over and over again so we get more patient and kinder and more loving. God wants us to have a spiritual, a profound spiritual experience with the Holy Spirit all the time. And the filling of the Spirit, back to my notes, the filling of the Spirit is distinct from salvation. It's unique, a unique work of the Holy Spirit. And it's something special that the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life today, right now even, and tomorrow. And the day after that, God wants to continually fill you up so that you overflow with him, with love and with kindness and with patience for other people. 
So that's, in a nutshell, the feeling of the Holy Spirit. When Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit touches her spirit, her mind, her heart in such a way that he creates all of these things in her at the same point in time. It's just basically like God shining his light on your heart and you going, there you go. And here, with Elizabeth, we see one of the first New Testament instances of someone filled with the Holy Spirit. And what did she do when the Holy Spirit filled her up? Let's look in verse 42, verse 43. She exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She saw how extremely spiritually privileged Mary was to carry the Messiah. She said to Mary, you are blessed. You have no idea how much God likes you. God really must like you if he lets you carry Jesus. And how blessed is Jesus? Like, blessed is the fruit of your womb. How blessed is Jesus? Well, he's like the most blessed you can get. (laughs) He's God's son. He's the word made flesh. Word made flesh. She recognized Jesus as her Lord. She even says, "Bless, why? Uh, sorry, why is the mother of my Lord? Why should he come to me? Why should she come to me?" Now that's something that's interesting. If you look back and saw what Zechariah revealed to Elizabeth, he didn't say anything about the Messiah. He didn't say anything about Mary. He didn't say anything about her getting pregnant. If you look beforehand, Elizabeth has no idea that Mary is pregnant. All she knows, all realistically, all Elizabeth knows at this point is what Gabriel told Zechariah. And Zechariah couldn't talk. So she's not going to get everything. And Mary also didn't write a letter and send it ahead. Hey, Elizabeth, coming to visit, pregnant with God's son, just wanted you to know. Didn't type that off in an email. The fastest way of getting the information to her was to walk down and tell her herself. So Elizabeth has no idea Mary is carrying Jesus. Up until the moment when she is filled with the Holy Spirit, she just thinks Mary's coming for a visit. But the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit fills Elizabeth, he reveals all of this to her. God, the Holy Spirit, shows Elizabeth what's going, now, going on. He shows her that Mary's pregnant, that she's carrying the Lord. This is important stuff. God is supernaturally revealing this to Elizabeth on the spot. And she sees it. She sees this picture of her relative being pregnant with the Messiah. And she goes, oh man, God is awesome. How blessed was Elizabeth that she gets included in such a special time in the history of the world. There is literally a nine-month window when Mary's pregnant. And she gets to enjoy hanging out with the pre-born Messiah. And the Holy Spirit, while filling up Elizabeth lets her see things from his perspective. He showed her how privileged she was to be included in his work and how special Mary was and how extremely special Jesus was. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. When we talk about the filling of the Holy Spirit, it shows us, the filling shows us how much God loves us. The Holy Spirit as a person in the Trinity, the Holy Spirit is the third person in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yes, we're all on the same page. When the Holy Spirit works in our lives, he points us to Jesus and shows us how much God the Father and God the Son loves us. That is what the Holy Spirit does. He directs us to God and says, God really loves you. 
And that is a defining characteristic of the Holy Spirit, his work in our lives, and the work that he does through us to other people. He points us to how much God loves us and the work that Jesus is doing in our lives. And the Holy Spirit here showed her how privileged she was to be included in his work. He points her to God and lets her see how much God loves her. So Liz is filling with the Holy Spirit, opened her eyes to the work of God around her. He let her see what God was doing around her. And she goes, man, God really loves me. This is awesome. You want to know why Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit? To show Elizabeth and Mary how much God loved them and to show them the the work of God going on right in front of them. When the Holy Spirit filled up Elizabeth, it was to show Mary and Elizabeth, hey, God really likes you guys. God loves you so much, you have no idea how special you are to him. And look at what he's doing right in front of you. You're pregnant with John the Baptist. You're pregnant with Jesus. This is a big deal. (laughs) This is awesome. And they see God's work in the world right in front of them. And as you experience the person of the Holy Spirit, he will help you to see the work that God is doing in your life right around you. And just how special you are to him too. Now, back to the first question I have where I want to spend most of my time. Why did John jump? Actually, the answer is actually pretty simple. John jumped. I'm going to get this to work one of these times. John jumped as a response to the presence of the Messiah. If you look and in the announcement of Gabriel to Zechariah, two sermons ago or 20 verses ago in your Bible, in verse 15. Luke 1, 15. For he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So the Holy Spirit is influencing John before he's born. All right? That's awesome. That is amazing. That is incredible. And this work of the Holy Spirit in influencing John's life regarding the Messiah comes out later in life. Now, I'm assuming because they were related, they saw each other growing up. But if you look in John chapter 1, verse 29, John's doing his thing. John the Baptist, wearing not the most comfortable of clothing. Camel's hair tunic, which I can't imagine would be very nice. But he was preaching, and he was very popular at the time. He preached repentance to the people, which is never a popular sermon subject. You don't just get up and talk about repentance over and over because people are like, okay, you need to go something else like family or (laughs) biblical interpretation. But he preached repentance. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That was his message. And he preached and people actually repented and people were baptized to show that they repented of their sins and that they wanted to change their life. And as John is doing this in his ministry, his cousin, relative, whatever, Jesus comes toward him. Jesus walks out to see John's ministry. And as John the Baptist sees Jesus walk towards him, he looks at him and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Holy Spirit inside of John prompted him. He saw Jesus and he saw him almost in like a new light. Like, this guy is the one we've been waiting for. This guy is awesome. This, guy, this guy's going to die for our sins. You guys don't even know it. This is God in the flesh. This is amazing. And I assume that this kind of response didn't happen as they were growing up. Family barbecues would have gotten annoying as like a teenager. 
John looks down the table and says, Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, would you please pass the mashed potatoes? <laughs> that didn't happen. These are special manifestations of the Holy Spirit at special times to show how great and how unique Jesus is. This is a special work that the Holy Spirit is doing, but I don't want to lose sight of what's going on here. John, in utero, responded to the sound of Mary's voice. That's not special. Told you Ben was moving around at the sound of my voice when I was talking. You're like, babies do that. This happens literally every time, or or sorry, every minute of every day around the world. Six months, six month long babies move. Who cares? Well, the kicker here is that something very clearly supernatural is going on. At six months along, John is about 24 weeks, 24 to 28 weeks along. And he is responding very obviously to the presence of the Messiah. He is having, John is having a spiritual experience and he's not even born yet. He knows nothing except the darkness of the womb, the sound of his mother's heartbeat, and the sound of his mother's voice. That's his whole world. Maybe some light and dark spots if she goes out after being in, goes out in the sunshine after being inside. He has extremely limited experience. He knows no words. He has no concept of color or the passage of time or any of that stuff. His cognitive development is probably at zero. <laughs> Yet God is clearly at work in his mind in his heart, and in his spirit. And this baffles me. This, I, I have the hardest time understanding this. A baby who can't even understand words, let alone speak, has the smallest grasp of reality or existence possible. Yet, this child is interacting with the Holy Spirit in a profound, biblically important way. And this is so foreign to me in my way of thinking about my faith. Because I intellectualize my faith so much. You guys, it's, it's bad. Okay? It's almost, I want to say it's borderline sinful how much I intellectualize my faith. Because it's, it's a brain exercise to me. I read books to try to understand my faith better. Have you seen all the books in my office? That's not even all my books. I got books on books. I have systematic theologies. I have commentaries. I have dissertations. I have Books on how to pray, how to use your spiritual gifts, how to explain the text. I have like hundreds of books that help me understand God better. And I'm continually trying to understand God better. To more fully grasp the divine nature about how great Jesus is or, and how Jesus is, how he was a human and how he was God at the same time. I want to grasp what the Holy Spirit's right, doing right now and I want to understand it. I want to understand how to read the Bible better how to better explain it than I did yesterday, make my sermons continually better. I'm continually intellectualizing my approach to God and basically coming to God as essentially a computer and saying, please insert disc two. Please insert disc three. We want to keep moving, God. There's more information. There's more stuff I want to know. Let's get moving on this. I very rarely approach God with my heart and I'm like, Jesus, I love you. You're great. Like I say it when I pray, but I rarely ever start with that one. I'm always just like, more knowledge, please. (laughs) Want to know more. I want to know you. I want to hear your voice. I want to know you more. I sang that all through high school, guys. (laughs) That was my jam. Because that's what I want. I want to know. I want to grasp. I want to understand. 
And I pour so much of my intellectual capacity into my spiritual life. And this is what, it almost like weirds me out that John here on some level has faith without being able to understand it. That to me just is the, that's, you know, tilt, done, can't understand. How can you have faith without the ability to cognitively think? But here, an unborn baby is clearly rejoicing in the Holy Spirit at Jesus' presence. Despite our rationalistic, materialistic, Western worldview, God is showing us that he can supernaturally work in people at any point in their lives. As I look back on my own life, the earliest I can remember, sensing the existence of God and the work of the Holy Spirit on my life, was at six years old. My son, who was wearing his Ninja Turtle sweater as a Christmas Christmas sweater this morning, that old, I wasn't that tall because he's mammoth, but I was six years old. I was singing at a vacation Bible school and I sensed God's presence and I sensed he was calling me to know him and I was just like, man, God really loves me. I knew nothing about the Holy Spirit. I knew no Bible verses, hardly any Bible stories. I had only the loosest concept of who Jesus was, but yet God was able to manifest his presence to me as a six-year-old and make me aware of the fact that he was real and that he loved me as a six-year-old. And I mean, like, I get that. Okay, six years old. All right, I'm with you, God. I can see a six-year-old. But here, this is a baby. This is pre-baby. We'd call him a fetus which is Latin for child, so <laughs> this, is, this is beyond my comprehension. Yet he is aware on some level of God's existence and he is responding to the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. This cracks me up too because we talk about Christians being born again. You know, when you're saved, when you come to Jesus, you're born again. This is Jesus' language for it in John 3. But here, John looks like he's born again before he's born the first time. So then he's, being born is being born the second time. God's funny like that. He kind of puts jokes in that you have to find. But this shows us that the the supernatural functions at a level that is deeper than intellect or emotion. Most people fall into one of two camps. You either intellectualize your faith or you emotionalize your faith. It's either all about when God makes me cry or it's all about me, you know, stick more information in my head, please. But... The supernatural, our faith, functions at a deeper level than that. It's something that somehow even a baby can experience. This to me is blowing my mind. This isn't like the James and Jacob moment from last week where I told you that the name in the Bible of James is the same as Jacob and everybody went, oh my goodness. But this is pretty deep, guys. And it carries profound meaning for our work here at the church. Because we have lots of kids at this church. I counted with my own little strong-willed daughter who didn't come down to the stage. We had 10 kids here. For a church this size, 10 kids is pretty good. And you can always tell we have kids when we're in worship because there's nothing quite as distracting as your kids leaning over to you during worship and whispering, whispering. I have it in quotes here. You know, Dad, Remy's here. Can I go sit by Remy? 
Yes, you can go sit by Remy. <laughs> make, sure, make sure Mr. Tom and Ms. Dana think it's okay. And then everybody does the shoulder look, you know. I'm not going to turn around and look, but I definitely want to see which child was yelling. <laughs> and sometimes you just think, man, I could worship God so much better if these kids weren't here. <laughs> I would be able to focus on worship. I'd be able to prepare mentally for my sermon, maybe even pray while I'm worshiping. But then there's a baby here that my wife is giving to me. There's my kids who can't sit still. And I'm just like, I love you. You're extremely difficult, but I love you. But these kids are a blessing from God for our church, especially having so many of them. And this passage shows us the potential for God to work in the lives of these children. Not just when they're preteens, not just when they're teenagers, when they can start intellectualizing stuff. But at any point in their lives, even as babies, even Ben, even Cheyenne's baby, God can work in their lives starting right now. So whether you have kids, I'm going to get applicational on you. So pay attention if you tuned out everything else. Listen now if you have kids, if you have grandkids, if you work with kids, or you spend any time with children that you might be related to, this should make you aware of the potential for God to work through them in their lives at any point in their development. We have to. As parents, as grandparents, as teachers, we have to be praying over our kids, over our grandkids, over anybody we're related to. I've been asking God to watch over my kids for years. Before they were even born, before I even got married, I was praying blessings on my kids. And since I got started praying for my kids, now that they're here, I'm like, man, I'm going to pray for my kids' kids. They're not even born yet. My kid, I, as soon as they're, I'm just like, God, please bless Seth's kids, and please bless Natalie's kids. Please bless Ben's kids. Help all of my kids to follow you, and help the next generation of kids to follow you, and help their kids to follow you. I'm praying down generations. I'm praying hundreds of years in the future, praying for people that don't exist yet, because I know that God will take the prayers that I'm offering to him now and bless my kids and my kids and my kids, 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 kids with them. I'm not praying just for their salvation too. I'm asking God for big prayers. Psalm 81.10 says, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. So I go to God and say, guess what? I got a big mouth. So I pray for my kids. I pray that they would have good friends. I pray against those kids that are mean in school. You know those kids? The ones that picked on me? I'm like, man, God, don't let them pick on my kids. I pray for good friends for my kids. And I pray that they would like school, that they would just be like, Dad, I love school. This is great. I pray that they would, <laughs> that they would do well in sports. What have you been praying for your kids? The kids in your life, are you praying for their salvation? I think at the very minimum we should be praying for that. But are you praying for the children in your life? And along with that, we have to bless them over and over again. We have to bless our kids with patience and with peace and with joy, and with kindness. Even before they're born, unborn babies. Not yet had babies. Just start praying over them. God bless them. If we believe that God is real, and he is the same as he was at Bible times, then we have to take our work with children seriously. Our job is not to keep them quiet until they're older and they can understand. It's really invest now. Invest when they're tiny for dividends later in life. And I want to conclude by tying this back into our mission statement of seek, equip, and send. We need to be equipping. We need to equip children to become spiritual warriors. 
Are we teaching our kids to pray? To know the Bible, to be kind? Are we teaching them how to listen to the Holy Spirit? To use their spiritual gifts, to bless those in their family? Every night, I pray for my kids before they go to bed. I'm praying for my kids all the time. But I pray for their kids and I put my hands on their head. And I say, you know, God bless them. Uh, give them a good night's sleep. Keep away any bad dreams. Whatever. And I pray some stuff over them. About a month ago, Natalie goes, Dad, can I pray for you? And I was like, yes. You can pray for me, Natalie. And she goes, okay, put your head down. Put my head down. A little hand goes on my head. Jesus, or sorry, God, please help Daddy to be a good daddy. <laughs> Now, she isn't getting, like, mean with her prayers yet. Please help Daddy to be patient and stop yelling at me. She doesn't do that yet. I'm assuming that's older. <laughs> but she was like, please help Daddy to make good choices and to love us. And I was like, this is beautiful. Because she goes, well, Dad can do it for me. I can do it for my dad. How awesome is that? Four-year-olds. And Seth saw it and was just like, eh. I'm like, Seth, you want to pray for Dad? No. He prays for stuff. He, he would pray for like Link and Mario. And I'm like, we don't need to be praying for video game characters. We can say thank you, God, for the games. But, but yeah, it, it meant the world to me that she put it together. Dad can bless me so I can bless my dad. But are we investing in our kids spiritually, even as babies, even before birth? Teachers and parents here, what are you doing to equip your children for their walks with God? Because let me tell you, parents are so, so important for the spiritual development of their children. Because one hour a week at church is not enough. <laughs> it's not going to transform your child's spiritual life. I know God could reach down from heaven and in that one hour touch their lives and, you know, poof. But parental influence is so important. Even in Kids' Kingdom, I hear some teachers struggle to change behavior in children, and they're with them for 10 hours a day, five days a week. They're like, I can't get through to this kid, and I'm with him all the time. Spiritual development has to start in the home. Parents, grandparents, that is a whole sermon by itself. But let me ask you, what are you doing to prepare yourself to mentor your kids? Are you modeling your faith? Are you showing them the way? Are you doing the things you have to be doing so your kids will grow up and say, I want to be like dad or grandpa or uncles, whatever. Parents are the number one influence on a child's life, which terrifies me, but I'm trying to do my best. And teachers and grandparents, you are high up there as well. What are you doing to help your children integrate their faith into everyday life? This passage about John the Baptist jumping in his mom's womb, verse 41, may seem weird to us, but it carries a profound truth. God is at work in everyone's life at all points in your life. So what are you doing to partner with God in that work? What are you doing to partner with God's work in your life and in your kids' lives, in your spouse's life? Parents, siblings. But I want to take just a minute. I can sense God's moving, or else everybody's just being really quiet for no reason, which is, never happens. People are uh, flipping through the Bible, looking on their phones. I can sense God working here. So I want everybody to bow your heads and let's pray for a minute. 
Holy Spirit, we invite your presence here this morning. We can sense that you are here, Holy Spirit, and that you are drawing us closer to Jesus. You are showing us how much God loves us and the investment that you've made in our lives. And right now, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would show us how we can partner with the work that you are doing in our lives. God, I believe you're at work in everyone's life here. Show us what you're doing. Show us how you're drawing us closer to yourself, Jesus. And also show us how you are at work in our kids, in our grandkids, in the students we have in our classes. God, single out children for us to be praying for. Show us what we should be praying for them. Holy Spirit, I'm confident you can speak to everyone in here right where we're at. We are your people. We are the sheep of your pasture. We want to work with you, God, and to see you exalted and glorified in this world. We ask for your help and your wisdom as we do these things. And it's in Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen.